0: Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. How do you react to the term radical? In its original context, it was used for going to the root of an issue or institution in order to resolve it, destroy it, or rebuild it. Jesus' work in us can be seen as radical as his sacrifice gets to the root of our sin, destroys it, and makes us new. Daryl Ford, lead pastor at Icon Community Church in Atlanta, starts the series Radical Love with this message entitled New Lives Means New Community, which covers Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Thank you for joining us today.
1: This is Daryl Ford. Just make yourself comfortable, man. Just uh That's how I get down. Just, just lounge, whatever you need. You know, you want a recliner? If you got one. <laughs> oh man we are in for a treat this morning to hear from daryl he is a gifted communicator uh, of god's word and uh i can't wait i was sitting in the early service and um, uh, you'll hear why but you'll be challenged i guarantee you'll you be challenged perhaps in some uncomfortable ways but you will also be blessed Um, let me tell you a little bit about daryl if i read everything that was on the sheet then i'd take up half his sermon time he's uh he's an accomplished man and has been had his hands in many things over the years. He's, he spent six years in the U.S. Air Force where he served as a meteorologist and uh, he served in Iraq and in Kuwait. Uh, he led worship there. He taught and discipled several military members uh, as he was serving in that way. He actually met his wife Patricia while going to meteorology school uh, down in Biloxi. Uh, Mississippi, and they have three kids, and I, I'm going to get them right this time. I, in the early service, I was somehow I got the wrong ages, and the kids weren't happy about it, and they shouldn't have been happy about it, because I would be mad too if you got my age wrong. But Paige is 9, Audrey is 7, and Sebastian is 5, is that correct? That's right. Okay, make sure I got that right. All going on 35. All going on 35, mature kids. Um, he spent some time in the corporate world as well. And so he's got a lot of background in a lot of different areas. But uh, the Lord had pressed on his heart for a while to, to be called into ministry. So he served uh, up in Indiana at a church up there starting in 2008. But then two, two and a half years ago, God led him to uh, plant Icon Community Church down in the East Lake community of, of Atlanta. And it's a perimeter plant. And the Lord is using him powerfully down there his family, and him both. And so uh, we want to pray for you this morning as you lead us, and we want to pray for your church as well. So let me pray. Father, thanks for this uh, this man of God that um, allows you to use him in such significant ways for your glory. Uh, thank you for the ways in which you are using him to lead your church, your people down in the Eastlake community and area in atlanta and father we pray for them we pray for that church would you bless it tremendously would you provide for them in every way uh, financially and even lord they're growing and we praise you for that And they need a bigger space to meet in for church and would you give them that would you lead them to the perfect spot the perfect building that would be uh, for their next stage of growth Uh, And so, Father, we thank you for this brother in Christ, and we pray this morning that as he brings your word to us, that you'd bless him, that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit, and you would use him as your mouthpiece. And Father, would you open our hearts to receive what he's going to teach us this morning. It can be hard to swallow, but it's what we need. And so, Father, would you do your work here in this place for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Amen. Thank you, brother. Yes, sir. Good morning, Perimeter. So good. Man, this is a lot livelier crowd, maybe it's just so early people are still sleep in the morning. First crowd, we had a harder time. Uh, it, it's so great to be back with you. It's been about three years since I've actually been before you, and so it, it's so great. I know what you're wondering. You want to know why does it look like I'm in the early phase of putting on the Iron Man suit? And so uh, I'll tell you, uh, Randy Pope and I got into a kickboxing sparring match. Uh, the winner got to go over to Asia. And not that it's a losing bet to have to come here because I love coming here. But, uh, you know, so so you can ask him about that when he comes back. Uh, It's truly an honor and a blessing to be here. And and largely because of the series that I get the opportunity to kick off. Um, This series, Radical Love, is one that is near and dear. I know to Perimeter's heart, definitely to our heart, uh, because we want to talk a lot about not only radical love, but how it informs radical community. As, uh, as Jeff brought up, we 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 planted a church in East Lake, uh, uh, roughly about two years ago. And East Lake is a very diverse community. Uh, it's right there near East Lake Golf Course. Uh, if you know where the FedEx Tour Championship takes place every year, it's right where it is. And, and uh, we, we actually see the golf course from our meeting space. And uh, a lot of a lot of great things happening there, but there are a lot of challenges. And it can be really challenging to understand what it means to love radically and how community looks when you love radically. So I want us to talk about that today. And as Jeff brought up, I'm hoping that you are as challenged as I've been in digging into this text. The text we're gonna go into, it's one that we may have read and seen many, many times, but there are things within this text that have really raked my heart over the coals when I really think about what real radical love looks like. So before we start that, I want you to just think of the word radical and think about what pops in your head. Just kind of let it sit for a minute. When you normally think about radical, I'm guessing that you think about examples of people who take a principle, a thought, and they take it beyond the, the, the reason for which it was intended. right? They take something that started out good and then they get quote-unquote extreme. They get too radical with it and they go beyond the purpose for which it was intended. Right? Uh, kids, kids do this. I saw a funny story of a kid where a parent t- tells a kid, I don't want to see your two feet in this room again. And there's a picture of the kid radically obeying that rule. The, the, the top part of the kid's body is in the, in, the, in the room and the two feet are outside the room. <laughs> they got pretty radical with it, right? That's typically how we'll think. We'll say, well, you know, that's just when people kind of go over the top. They go over the top with something and it's, it's way above and beyond what's necessary. So usually when we use that definition, we superimpose that over the idea of love and we say, well, if I'm going to love radically, then I'm going to find ways to love above and beyond what I would be required to do. And that's a scary way of thinking, because that is a way in which we can begin to pat ourselves on the back, can easily go, look, I figured out what love is and now I know how to do it radically. And it's not necessarily required, but it's something that I can do and I can pat myself on the back and look at how benevolent I am. Everyone, check me out. I'm I'm amazing. And so it's, it, we have to be very careful not to think of radical that way. The definition of radical comes from a Latin word, radix or radix, and it literally means root. OK, I, before going in the military, I, I was in college for electrical engineering, love math. And one of the beautiful things about uh, math, there, there are these 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 numbers known as radicals, right? radical numbers. These are numbers that exist under the radical sign. Right. And so typically, if you see the square root of four, the idea is that this represents a value. And so I need to find out the root of this this expression to understand its value. Quite literally, the word radical means from the root out. And so there really is radical typically has a very negative connotation. but, But honestly, to be radical is to be authentically and totally true from the root out. That's what it means. And so when we talk about radical love, this isn't a matter of like uh, uh, doing additional things that are suggested but not required. To be a Christian is to be authentically Christian is what it means to be radically like Jesus. I am from the root out, this is who I am and so when we keep that in our keep keep that in your mind as we uh, move through this and even keep it through your mind as other speakers come over the next few weeks because this is what we want you to understand this is what god has been really impressing on our hearts what it means to be thoroughly and holistically like jesus how does it permeate every fiber of my being the way that i that i talk the way that i walk the way that i engage with my family the way that i run my business the way that i act as an employee every part of my life should be impacted and permeated by the person of Christ. That's what it means to be radical. It just means to be authentically, exhaustively like Jesus. So, so with that, keep that in mind. We're going to go into a text that gives us—to gives, me, it gives us the best example of true radical community that, that we could ever see. I mean, what better place in the Scriptures to look for radical community than the birth of the church? We're going to look at Acts chapter two, verses one through thirteen, and we're going to look at what it looked like when when Jesus uh, built His church. What did it look like for the New Testament church to to exist for the first time? So, let's read this together. I'll read it out loud, and, and we'll move forward. Acts chapter two, verses one through thirteen. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking, said they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This text is, is a very interesting one because uh, when you look at the, very, the first four verses, the, the first four verses, depending on how you approach the text, can send you in a tailspin. Uh, Frankly, these first four verses, outside of understanding context, have actually created doctrines and whole denominations. And so when you look at the text, and, and we're gonna talk about it, but when you look at the text, be very careful. And just let me just tell you this. If you think, I grew up in a denomination where this, these first four verses would be read and then we would skip the rest of it and jump down to something else. And that's how you kind of create doctrine on your own. And so if you do that, if you look at this and you say, okay, this primary uh, thrust of this chapter is about tongues, you're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Okay? So, so, so don't get it twisted. Don't allow yourself to get drawn into something. This is not the intent of what God has taken us. It's a very important part and we're going to talk about why. So, so with that, let's understand the context. Let's understand what's, what's happening right now. What's already occurred? Well, we know Jesus has just lived his life. He's just been crucified and he's, he's just died. He's resurrected. He appeared before his disciples, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he, he tells them something. He gives them a parting instruction, a parting command. And we see that in, in Acts 1, verse 8. He says this, He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, now, try to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples back then. You've got a bunch of unlearned fishermen. Jesus has just done all these amazing things. He's already told them, uh, you know, you're going to do greater things than than you've seen me do uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to do some amazing things. And they're still trying to figure out what that means. And then Jesus says, uh, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to empower you to go be my witnesses. Now, we got to stop there. You have to understand that in being a Christian, okay, make this very real for you. In being a Christian, you have to understand that you are not just saved from something. You are saved to something. You see, you're not just saved. We absolutely thank God that we're saved from our sin, saved from death, saved from the grave. All of those things, we can, those things aren't the final word and we praise God for that. But it isn't just, great, I'm saved, I've got my fire insurance intact, now I can just hide in a closet, get in my bubble and wait for Jesus to come. No, you are saved to something. You're saved to be a witness. What does it mean to be A witness. And it's interesting that Jesus says you're going to receive power to be a witness. He doesn't just say, hey, go be witnesses, figure it out. Good luck. I'm rooting for you. He says, the only way that you can be my witness, you need a power outside of yourself to do it. Your cleverness won't do it. Your resume won't do it. Your good stock, having family members that were Christians or being raised in church your whole life, that won't do it. You need a power outside of yourself to superimpose himself on you in order for you to go, wow, this isn't even of my own doing. I can't even brag about it. I can't even feel good about the fact that I'm obeying because I know that God is the one that does it. I know that it's his power. So it's interesting because, because what that shows you is that while Jesus gives you the command or the authority to do it, the authority by itself isn't enough. You need the authority and the power to do it. Here's an example. There's a, a funny story of a, of a government employee working for the Department of the Interior, and he, uh, he, he, he gets his marching orders. He has to go to this particular plot of land and do some geological readings. So he gets to the plot of land and the farmer who owns the land meets him at the front. And He says, hey, sir, I've got uh, uh, some some uh, some some orders from the government to come and take some readings on your land. And the guy says, you're not taking readings on my land. And he said, well, you, you, don't, you don't understand. I have documentation that gives me the authority to be on your land. So if you wouldn't mind moving out of the way, I'm just going to climb over this fence now and start taking some readings. And the man says, you aren't going to do that on my land. And he just walks right by him, climbs over the fence, goes to the middle of the land, gets there, sets up his equipment, his instruments, and begins taking readings. And during that time, he begins to feel the ground shake, begins to oscillate. He feels everything vacillating, and he's going, what is going on? I don't know what's happening. And then he looks straight ahead, and he sees a bull with his head down charging him. And he does what you or I would do. He starts taking off running. Obviously, I can't really do that right now. So you guys would just let me kind of save you because the bull would get me first. But he's running, he's running, he's running, and he gets to the fence and he sees the farmer and he says, help, because your voice gets higher when you get scared, help. And the farmer looks at him and he says, why don't you show that bull that paperwork that you have? (laughs) You see, you can have the authority to do a thing, but if you don't have the power, you're not doing it. And so what we see here is God saying, Jesus saying, I am sending you to be my witnesses, but I'm giving you my power to do it. And this is what we see in Acts. See, what we see in Acts is Jesus has already told them, you're going to go and be my witnesses throughout all the world. Well, again, put yourself back in the shoes of an unlearned fisherman. You would never leave about a 25 mile radius your entire life. How in the world are you going to know how to speak to people all over the world? We don't have language schools here. We don't have a bunch of translators here. How in the world are we supposed to go talk to all these people about you when we, we don't even speak our own language that well? And Jesus says, you're going to receive power to do it outside of yourself. And so what does he do? He enables them to speak real languages understood by people that were there, which brings us to verses 5 and 6. You realize that and those, uh, it's interesting how Luke, the author of Acts, kind of plays this out, right? He says that there were Jews from every nation represented that day. Why was that the case? It's definitely not a coincidence. If you know anything about Jewish culture, one of the things that was always true, if you were a Jew, you wanted to make one pilgrimage in your life to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. At some point in your life, you hoped to get to the Passover. So it's no coincidence that you have all of these different ethnicities, cultures, races, that happened to be there. They're there to celebrate. And what were they celebrating? They were celebrating the Passover. And when they celebrated Passover, these folks knew how to party. They partied for seven straight weeks, singing and dancing and eating and drinking. And I'm not saying they were doing the whip and nay nay, but they were getting down. You can Google that if you don't know what it is. I, I can't do it for you right now, but check it out later. You'll be, you'll be amused. But they were getting down and they were celebrating. and they were, you, you always wanted to be a part of the festivities and you wanted to be a part of that. It was a part of your community. And so being a part of that community meant we're going to celebrate the truth of who God has been to us and what we're looking forward to him being to us. And so you would do that and you would celebrate. And then on the 50th day, which is another word for Pentecost, by the way, on the 50th day is when the Holy Spirit comes down. The Holy Spirit comes out and says, listen, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you my power to communicate to all those people who are celebrating the Passover, right? Celebrating that incredible uh, event of the angel of death passing over the people of God who have trusted him by faith. He, the, the Holy Spirit is saying you're going to communicate that the very Passover they're celebrating has always been pointing to the Savior that just died and resurrected. It's an incredible picture. And so, so it's, no, it's no shock that all of these different ethnicities are going, this is amazing. We're hearing them speak our languages. They're just Galileans. They're just, they're just ragtag, uneducated guys. How in the world are they doing this? That's the power of God. And so you see that. There's another thing that we need to see that I think is, is really interesting. I think um, it, it's, it's really interesting when you look at verses 6 through 11 that Luke begins to list specific people groups. He lists specific races. He lists specific ethnicities. Why does he do that? He could have just said, there was a bunch of folk, y'all. If he were Southern, that's what he would have said. There's a bunch of folk, y'all. But he didn't. He actually says, here are the specific races and ethnicities that were there. Why does he do that? I think this is one of the first areas that we really need to allow the scriptures to impress upon us and even make us a little bit uncomfortable. Because I think in very well-intended fashion, we'll say something that we we mean. Again, we mean with, with good intentions. We'll say something to kind of deal with the race issue. And here's what we'll say. You know, I honestly, as a Christian, I just don't see race. I'm colorblind. Is that really the biblical example we see in scripture? To avoid race altogether or to embrace race and celebrate race as yet an expression of the very image of God. You see, there are a few things based on the law of unintended consequences. There are a few things that we communicate that we may not mean, I hope we don't mean to communicate. I've been guilty of this so, so much in my own Christian life. There are things that we communicate we don't mean to. First thing we communicate is this. I am not, I am, I've am. i chosen selectively to ignore certain things that make you authentically you. There are things about your story that I honestly have chosen to just not see, which means if you are not from the majority culture, then you're going to go, you know, it's I need to do my best to hide and, and, and almost in, in, in a way kind of keep any evidence that shows that I'm different from you in any way. I need to keep that to the side. I need to figure out the best way to assimilate in this culture so that I don't have to remind you because you've selectively chosen not to see that. Which means secondly, if there are injustices that are inextricably woven to my experience as a part of a race, class, or culture, if there are injustices that I've dealt with or endured, I can't possibly share that with you either because you've chosen not to see race as as a part of my story which means you'll likely give me every other reason that certain injustices happened and and completely uh, explain that devoid of race. See, if we're talking about radical love and we say that it means from the root out, then that means every single part of you is one that I want to love. Every part of you, I want to know. Every part of you, I want to engage in. And every part of you, I want to massage the gospel in and I want you to do the same for me. So what we see here is biblically, and there are plenty of other scriptures where God is very clear about certain people groups and certain races, and it's a very beautiful thing. There's incredible ways that God redeems all of the differences, and and we get to celebrate those things. But we see this radical power on display, and when when we have to get away from echoing these hollow platitudes because frankly, it's just not biblical. Michelle Alexander, she's a a professor at Ohio State. She wrote a book called The New Jim Crow. And here's what she says about colorblindness. She says, the colorblind public consensus that prevails in America today, like the widespread belief that race no longer matters, has blinded us to the realities of race in our society and facilitated the emergence of a new caste system. Seeing race is not the problem. Refusing to care for the people we see is the problem. We should hope not for a colorblind society, but instead for a world in which we can see each other fully, learn from each other fully, and do what we can to respond to each other fully with love. You see, colorblindness is a luxury luxury afforded to those who can actually choose to ignore race. It's a luxury afforded to some, but not to others. And so we have to be very careful. I want to love you fully. I need to know everything about you and I don't want to overlook intentionally or otherwise. I don't want to overlook that aspect of who you are because you're an image bearer. There's a part of the image of God you bear that I probably need. Please don't hide that. Radical love means we love people from the root up every part of their story. This includes their race, their class, their culture, anything else that makes up their story. There's another reason why I think Luke records this, though. It's really interesting Uh, when you think about this story. I always say, be very careful when you look at your own personal story When you're reading the Scriptures. Always figure out or ask yourself the question, how does this fit in God's big story? Many times we almost get myopic and we look at one thing. Uh, Again, many doctrines are created this way. We, We highlight one Scripture, hold on to that. Even though there were other Scriptures that would help inform that better, we don't do that, and so we create our own doctrine, we create our own way of thinking. How do we understand this in lieu of God's big story? Well, God's been on a mission to be able to carve out a multi-ethnic people group to himself going all the way back to Genesis. If you recall the story of the Tower of Babel, any of us remember that? If you don't, take you through the details real quick. Genesis 11, uh, Noah's descendants, uh, the floods already occurred. Noah's descendants are now uh, repopulating the earth right? They're repopulating the earth and they're procreating and and, uh, all of a a sudden people are growing and their cities are growing and they're all speaking one language and they're feeling very proud of themselves. They're saying, listen, we are united and united there's nothing we can't accomplish. We want to create a legacy for ourselves. We want generations after us to look back and say, that was an amazing generation. They were incredible. Look at the legacy. Look at the monument that they left. And so here's what they decided to do. They said, we're gonna, we're gonna go, we're gonna build a, a city and a, and a building that people will always see as almost like a flag planted of our greatness. See, their unity was rooted in self-adulation and self-aggrandizement. Right? Unity, by, unity for the sake of unity can be a really bad thing, right? And so they get really unified and they begin to build and they begin to build. And it's really interesting what God does. God looks down and he says, if we let them do this, there's nothing they won't be able to accomplish. And that was a bad thing because everything they were uniting was based on, the, on self. It was based on building up self. Look at how great we are. So God said, we can't, we can't have this. So what did he do? He confounded their language. You know, the first time we see speaking in tongues is the result of sin. And the reason why is because people are pouring or they're, they're building themselves up so much. God says, I'm going to use language to confound you. I'm going to use language to divide you. So essentially, you would have someone working on the building. Most theologians think these buildings were what they call ziggurats. If you've never seen one, they're, they're essentially the example, uh, uh, similar to uh, Egyptian pyramids with the, with the stair steps that go up. I was stationed in Iraq for, for several months in southeast Iraq in, in Ur, modern day Ur of the Chaldees where Abraham was born and the largest preserved ziggurat is still there. We got to walk up and see it and really, really incredible structure. This is likely the kind of structure they were building. So you got a guy, he's working and he's, you know, going going to town on this building and he looks over at his buddy and he's like, hey, can you hand me that flint rock? And the the buddy looks and his language has already been changed and he's going, what'd you just say about my mama? And see, what, what God just did there was I'm going to confound your language. I, you guys are all going to start speaking in other tongues, and I'm the one that caused it, but it's because of your pride that I'm doing this. And so what happened? They all went back home. And who did they go home with? They went home with the people that were speaking like they spoke. They were going home with people that were uh, like-minded, the way that they were. You do realize that the whole reason why, uh, you know, the, the reason why segregation and diversity ever happened was because of sin. You realize that? And so, and so what we see here is Pentecost reversing the curse of Babel. We're seeing God saying, listen, I've been on this mission from the beginning to redeem you and call you back to myself. And so, so what does he do? And and by the way, we see this in the Old Testament. If you remember in Isaiah 11, uh, God already says exactly what it is he's gonna do. Listen, the fall's happened and and everything has been shattered and relationships have been marred and we've got all these diverse groups that are at odds with each other. But here's what I'm gonna do, Isaiah 11, 11, he says, "'In that day the Lord will extend his hand "'to recover his remnant that remains of his people "'from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, "'from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, "'and from the coastlands of the sea.'" God is on a mission to carve out a New Testament body of multicultural image bearers. Because you know what that does? It proves to the outsiders only God can do that. It's not in me on my own to even do that or facilitate that. Only God can do that. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And so this is what we notice. And there are a few things that you can see Uh, that you can observe about how Babel reverses Pentecost. First, Babel was an example of earth trying to ascend to the heavens, and Pentecost was, was an example of the heavens descending down to earth. Babel was an example where languages were confused, nations were scattered, but at Pentecost, language barriers were overcome. People were united and brought together in Christ and then scattered for Christ. At Babel, language was used to promote a human agenda. Let's build a, a monument to ourselves. But at Pentecost, language was used as a sign to announce the mighty works of God. Essentially, Babel resulted in disunity. Pentecost resulted in unity. Now, this makes, this makes sense when you consider God's big story. Amen? I mean, think about it. What's God's big story? We talk about it all the time. Uh, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, right? creation. We were created to have perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with each other. And when the fall entered in, when when the fall happened, we no longer were able to relate rightly to God or each other. And so massive schisms happen. Pick a schism, racism, sexism, classism. Every ism is a result of our schism with God. And so now we've got all of these issues that are happening, and yet redemption is still true. God is saying, I am buying you back, and I am remaking you to now relate to me correctly so that you can now relate to each other correctly. And eventually we're going to be restored fully where it won't even be a struggle anymore. This is the picture of God's big story. And I can tell you as a church planter, you know there are lots of books that, that us church planters that we church planters read i've read roughly 60 to 70 books about church planting best practices best ways to grow your church all those things most church planters write and most a lot of theologians will say attempting to plant a multicultural church is a, is a, can be a futile and wasted effort it because people they love what they love. They want what they want. They, it's not feasible. It's not sustainable, which is true, right? If the fall really did affect our ability to relate to each other, here's what that means. I choose people to be around me who are like me. There are points of commonality and affinity that, uh, with which I base my relationships. And so, and so for me, I love, I love being around people that remind myself of me see, if there's something in your story that connects to my story, I want to hear that because there's a lot of things about you that remind me of me. Why? Because I love me some me. <laughs> and, so, and, so, and so basically what people will say is, listen, this trying to plant a church intentionally, multiculturally is, is, is a wasted effort. Or we'll say good Jesus things like it won't happen until Jesus returns. So let's just wait. If you believe that, if you hold on to that, you can't possibly believe in the third person of the Trinity. You have to believe that the Holy Spirit has been neutered of his power. Because if in in Isaiah 11, he said, I'm prophesying that this is the body of people that I'm calling to myself. And then in Pentecost, he demonstrates, this is the body of people that I'm calling to myself. And then we look at uh, Revelation 7, When God says, this is what the community of God's people will be when we are reigning with Christ, here's what he says. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and for the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God prophesied it in the past, he's demonstrated it in the present, and he's showing you what's happening in the future. But yet, for some reason, Sunday's still the most segregated day of the week. And for many of us, we're comfortable with it because we're like, hey, people like what they like, that's it, can't change that. If that's the case, then the Holy Spirit has no more power. If that's the case, if you actually feel that way, then there's a chance that you might be yearning more for Babel than for Pentecost. There's a chance in our own hearts, I tell you right now, even in my own heart, there are parts that yearn for Babel more than Pentecost. And that's where radical love and radical community comes in. That's, this is what happens when we, when we talk about how radically we've been changed. You realize you can't seek change until you've been radically changed. You can't radically love until you've been radically loved. You can't be a part of radical community until you have been grafted into radical community. So what does radical community looks like? My closing minutes here. What does what what radical community look like for churches? I'm going to submit to you three ways that communities tend to form in churches. One of them I would say, I would submit to you, is radical. The first way is what we'll call the soup church. Now with the soup church, this is going to make some of y'all hungry, so lunch is coming, Be ready? I'm not providing it, but lunch is coming. <laughs> I'm not that kind of radically, you know, community community guy. Don't worry about that. Uh, Soup Church, when you think about a soup, you have several individual elements that make up the soup, right? So you've got a lot of things that you put in the soup, but quite easily you just put it in a blender, press frepe, and you can blend that thing together and you've got a perfectly pureed soup. Now, what does that mean? That means that regardless of the individual elements you've put in, The consistency is always the same and the flavor is all the same. And largely, it's just the same bite after bite. Nothing wrong with that, but that's the bite. It's the same taste over and over and over again. This represents what you might call the monocultural church. Hey, this is who we are. We look the same. We talk the same. We vote the same. We dress the same, which means we've got the same pleated khakis and parted the hair on the right side or the left. I don't know. I don't have hair. I can't really demonstrate that either. In those cultures, it's like, hey, listen, this is just, you know, we are affinity based. We are people that look like us. This is our church. Praise Jesus. But then, and and so I get, for most of us, we're kind of like, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm not sure. I'm thrilled with that. That doesn't seem like that's really, you know, what God's doing. So let's really get diverse. And so we start looking like what I'll call the salad church. Now, the salad church, that's really where a lot of us may have been right? I've been a part of the salad church. It's really easy because what happens with the salad church, you feel great because you've got individual elements that are still on display. They haven't been perfectly pureed so that you, lose, you don't miss anything. Uh, you, you still see, you know, the lettuce and the carrots and the onions and tomatoes. It's all there. But if I don't want to be reminded or bothered by the flavor of the tomato, all I need to do is do what? Just douse ranch all over the thing. You see, I don't want to be reminded or because sometimes there are things that you might bring up that cause some form of emotional dissonance or cognitive dissonance. I don't know how to respond to it. And so it's just frankly too hard to deal with. So let's just pour the ranch on. And 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 Jeff encouraged me to bring this up. When you look at the color of the ranch, what color is it? This isn't me being angry brother. The white guy told me to tell you this, Okay. (laughs) But it is interesting because in predominantly when you're in a majority culture community and people from other cultures come in, there's a pressure. Hey, we need to put this, whatever the majority culture is, white culture, whatever it is, we're going to pour this on you. So so, so basically, kind of what we talked about before, you know not to bring up certain things because so much ranch has been doused on you. I don't want to taste that flavor. I don't like tomato. Let me put a lot of ranch on it. So I might have to chew it and annoyingly chew through it, but I don't have to really taste it. That's honestly where our, a lot of our churches are. I, if you have struggles and troubles and, and and certain things that have been a part of your story, I like seeing you. You do realize there's a difference between being multicolored and multicultural. See, if we just got lots of colors, that's great. But do people feel the comfort level to be able to say, hey, let me share with you some unique things about my story, some unique, unique things about my own racial experiences, ethnic experience, class experience, cultural experiences that really make, have kind of imprinted on, on me and made me a, 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 the person that I am. Do I feel the, the level, do I feel the safety to share that? Not if I'm dripping with ranch. But what the, what the Church of Pentecost looks like is very different. The Church of Pentecost looks like a stew. Now the stew, similar to the the salad, the stew has individual elements on display. The stew has several different things that are present, right? You've got steak, potatoes, carrots, uh, uh, peas. Maybe you've got onions. Maybe you've got green peppers. But the difference between the stew and the salad is that there's no way to hide from the other flavors in the stew. Why is that? Because uh, one guy told me after the last service, he said, you know, what's interesting about making a stew, he says, there's two ways you can make a stew. You can put it in the slow cooker, and it takes a long time for that to, to, to come about. And by the way, in good Christian language, that's kind of what we'll say. We'll say, hey, this takes time. It's a convenient way to avoid having to talk about the issues. It takes a long time. Jesus is coming back. Let's just wait for that. And so he'll say, you know, there's the slow cooker approach, which I think many of us may have subscribed to at one point. He said, but honestly, if you want to be able to have a great stew now, You put it in a pressure cooker and when you put it in the pressure cooker, what happens? The carrot begins to bleed on the peas. The peas begin to bleed on the potato. The potato begins to bleed on the steak. And so what that means is that there are parts of my story, parts of your story that need to be indelibly etched on each other in order to look more like Jesus and in order to love more like Jesus, and in order to be in radical community that Jesus has called us into. I need some of your onion on my steak. I need to walk around, it's okay to smell like a little onion sometimes. And what does that mean? That means that if I'm in a, a, in a community of people that may, they may not have the luxury of being in a, in a real radical community. They may not have been in a stew church, so they may have a viewpoint about people groups that might be completely different, But now I have had my brother or sister in Christ bleed onto me so that I can now communicate a little bit of their own story back to someone. Let me make this real. We've got lots of different people in this church, lots of different backgrounds, lots of different cultures in this church. When you're in a majority culture church and and certain things happen in our culture, in our society that arrests the collective consciousness of, of certain people groups, do they feel the comfort level to then share that in church? If you've got people of color that are hugely impacted, whether you agree with it or not, by the Black Lives Matter movement, how do we engage that? The the scriptures say that we're supposed to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. But if people are mourning with respect to those issues, are we able to mourn with them? Are we able to to, to understand where they are and their struggle and, and what's really hurting them? No, because for many people, they feel like, you know what, there's no place at the altar for that kind of mourning. If we're loving from the root out, then we're saying, I'm loving all of you. I need all of you. I need that onion. I need that potato. This is what it means to be in radical community. I'll close with this. A friend of mine was on staff with World Vision for a really long time, a very prominent position and doing great work all around the world. And they went and visited uh, a slave, a former slave castle in Africa. And in this, in this castle, it was interesting, they, they, they talked about what they observed. They saw uh, the, the chamber that was at the base of the castle, where uh, they would obviously uh, uh, collect and, and kidnap Uh, several prisoners of war between some of the tribal, uh, some of the tribal villages. And they would capture them and they would, uh, the Portuguese, the Spaniards, the Brits, they would all kind of uh, send, send them off. And so by and large, they got sent to the Caribbean islands and Brazil and to North America. And so that chamber was there and they would hold them in chains in that chamber, waiting for the next ship to come. But above the chamber was a chapel. And in the chapel, He actually told me there's still a record where people were keeping notes and minutes of what was happening in the church services. And uh, one of the logs showed that people were worshiping, much like we're worshiping today, worshiping and singing out Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and praising God with effusive praise, praising God with with incredible insouciance. And And then beneath them, they hear the cries of these Africans crying out for help, crying out to be released. And here's what the log said. As their cries got louder, our songs got louder. We sang louder to drown out the sound. How much of that happens in our church? How much much of our church is being the chapel while drowning out the cries from the chamber in in our very church? There are people that may be struggling, suffering, dealing with any number of things, and they're looking for a safe community with whom they can process this. They're looking for a place where the gospel, the love of the gospel can be massaged into those places. They're looking for radical community. I can tell you this, that a large number of atheists and agnostics and unchurch as well as de-church bring this thing up. They're like, it's so great that you talk about this love, this Jesus, but honestly, when I look at how churches look on Sunday, I can't possibly believe that that's this radical love you're talking about because these people don't seem to demonstrate it. But I submit to you, that the Holy Spirit is at work, God is building his church, and this is the community he's called us into. So what church are we? Let's pray that God will lead us into becoming a stew church, amen? Amen, let's pray. Father, you are, you are good, your ways are good, your plans are good, and, and Father, honestly, at our very heart, our plans are not. God, if I'm honest, I can see so many areas in every part of my heart that sometimes just yearns for Babel and avoids, avoids Pentecost. God, I pray that you will, that you will impress yourself upon us in such a way that even if we don't invite you in, you will kick in the door and make it so real what your community looks like, what your heart is. God, convict us of the areas in which we just have not made this a priority. We don't even think it's a priority. God, these kind of changes don't happen by being guilted into anything. We need your spirit to be pressed upon us. We need you to melt our hearts. We need you to mold our hearts. We need you to break us, but then comfort us with the truth of the gospel that says this, that while we were yet sinners, you still saved us. You still rescued us. So while we stand yearning for Babel, because of your great work, the Spirit's work at Pentecost, you are drawing us in. God, let us believe the truth of who you are, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-everything God. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray, amen.
1: amen. Primitive Church, um, every now and then God will bring someone along and anoint him with a message that is timely and deeply needed. And that was one of those messages. One of those where it's a punch in the gut and you say, thank you. That's what I needed. The question I'm thinking as we sing this song is, um, do do we believe and do we mean what we're singing right then? Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place, not just this room, but our hearts with your atmosphere. If we're really meaning that, then what that necessarily means is that we're inviting the Holy Spirit to come and do things in us and through us that we may not necessarily know that we need and may lead us into some uncomfortable places because we haven't been there before, but that are awesome. I know for me, I'm saying, God, lead us there as a church to where you want us to be. Things that I need to repent of, things that we need to repent of. I don't know that I need to repent of this, but he nailed me, khakis, parted hair. I don't know that I can help it. I grew up in Alabama. Where do you think Bama bangs come from? That's that's what this is. But he nailed us. And I think God's doing great things in this church, but there are so many more great things he can be doing. If we say, you know, take us to where you want us to be as a kingdom of God to be a Pentecost stewy church. We wanna go there. And I I really think and and hope and pray that this is one of those days, we look at this day, we say June 5th, 2016, was the day that the Lord showed up in our lives in such a way that we didn't just go home and say, hey, that was a good message, I'll share it on Facebook, although you should do that, because it was great, but that we actually go home and we get in our closets and we hit our knees and we say, yes, Lord, do what you will with me, help me lead in this church in such a way to where we are going, where you want us to go, reflecting your kingdom in this place we look back years from now and go, man, that was a day the Lord showed up and we're, we're going in the direction that he wants us to go. All right. I'm going to stop preaching, but man, I could, I could stay here for another hour. Uh, I won't do that. (laughs) Thank you. God's going to do some good things here. He is doing good things here. Let's, man, let's get excited in response to this message of what he wants to do in us and through us. Amen. Receive this benediction. Think about this benediction. Sometimes we say, can God really do this? Multicultural, multi-ethnic church. Yeah, he can. Listen to Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory, both in his
0: church and in Christ Jesus our Lord through all generations forever and ever. Amen.